Well, good morning again, church. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. The title of the sermon is The Forerunner of the Messiah, part 1. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. If you are physically able to stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. We, we try to stand for it because... That's what we see in the days of Ezra when the word of God was read. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. Here is what Matthew the Apostle writes. He writes this. He says, In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. Now, John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. The axe is already at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to remove his sandals. He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with fire that never goes out. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you for every single word and letter that you have given to us in the scripture, divinely inspired. We know that all of it is breathed out by you, meant to teach us and correct us and rebuke us and train us for righteousness, to equip us. And I pray it will be no different with this text this morning, that it will do all those things. Lord, please give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what is in your word. Remove me as much as possible. May we uh, just be more like you, Jesus, from hearing your word. And may we be hearers and doers and not just hearers only. We pray for those who don't know you, that by hearing your word proclaimed and hearing the gospel, that they would come to you and repent and believe and be saved. And we pray in everything, God, that you would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray all of this. Amen. Please have a seat. Now, given that it is Christmas season, Christians rightly reflect on what the reason of the season is, like what this is all really about. And I'm just going to give it to you up front. Christmas is about this. It is about God invading history on a search and rescue mission. It's like God's D-Day, if you will. It's about God orchestrating all of history in a very intentional and planned way to bring about a Savior. A Savior born in the right time, in the right place, to the right people to fulfill God's perfectly right plan. The beginning chapters of Matthew are all about that, and that's what we've been seeing. Well, as I said, this Savior came at the right time, and part of that meant he came right after someone else that was supposed to come first. A prophet was supposed to pave the way for the promised Savior. And according to the Gospel of Luke, God granted this older couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, a couple of Levites, he gave them, even though they were aged, he gave them a child in the the womb. A child that was filled with the Holy Spirit even when he was in the womb. That child grew up with the mission of preparing the way of the Lord. In the year 26 AD, that child, now a man, appeared in the deserts of Israel as Johanan the Immerser, or what we call him as John the Baptist. What he said, what he did, what he looked like, where he was, that was all a very important part of God's plan to bring forth the Savior. So that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at that person, that person who prepares the way for the Savior. So the point of the text is really simple. John the Baptist is the necessary forerunner of the Messiah. Okay, he is this guy, and I threw the word necessary in there because he had to be this guy. John the Baptist is the necessary forerunner of the Messiah. 
Now, how do we know this? Matthew shows it to us in two real easy ways. He will tell us what John did, and he'll tell us what John taught. What John did and what John taught. When we see what he did, and when we hear what he taught, it will become clear to us that he indeed is the necessary forerunner of the Messiah. Now, this morning, as much as I wanted to get through all 12 verses, that ain't going to happen. So we're only going to focus on the first part, what John did. Okay, what John did, the first six verses. Now, as we continue through the Gospel of Matthew, we are coming to a new setting entirely. Okay, now things are changing. So far, everything has been about Jesus' birth and his infancy. But starting in chapter 3, now we jump forward 30 years, according to the Gospel of Luke. It's, it's a 30-year jump. Jesus now, by the time we start chapter 3, is a grown man, and his ministry is about to start. Now, a lot of times people want to know, what did Jesus do as a little kid? Matthew intentionally leaves out Jesus' childhood because for the purposes of who Jesus is and what he came to do, it just wasn't important for us to know those details. Luke tells us a couple things, but it isn't much. But here's what we do know. Here's what we've seen. We've seen in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, that Jesus is the hope of Israel and the world. He is the one who was promised from the beginning. Then in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, we saw that Jesus is the son of David, meaning he is the king of Israel. But he's also the son of God, born of a virgin. He's Emmanuel, God with us, which means he's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of kings. Then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we saw that the coming of Jesus demands a response from all people. You will either respond to him with saving faith, like the Magi did, or with fearful rage, like Herod did, or with indifference, like the uh, religious leaders did. Only one of those responses is right. Only believing on Jesus leads to salvation. The other two responses lead to condemnation. Now, in chapter 2, verses 13 through 23, which we covered last time, we saw that Jesus himself is the embodiment and fulfillment of all of Scripture. And I got to say, in all my years of being a pastor, that was probably my favorite text that I've ever had the privilege to preach. Because for me, I was like a kid in a candy store. It was just exciting to get to show you guys how the entire Old Testament is one big, beautiful tapestry that paints one big, giant picture of our Lord Jesus. And that's what chapter 2, verses 13 through 23 showed us. So that's what we've, all, that's what we've seen in the first two chapters, all of that. So the question is, what are we going to see in our text today? Well, all the things that we've already seen were meant to tell us who Jesus is and where he came from, okay? They were meant to prepare us for what he was here to do. They were meant to prepare us for his ministry. That is why they were focused on his time as an infant, because we really needed to grasp who he is. Who is this child? But now, Matthew is ready to move us to his ministry. What did he do? Now, I say all that, and you might be scratching your head and saying, well, wait a minute, in the text that I read this morning, there's nothing about Jesus' ministry yet. There's a reason for that. Jesus does not appear on the scene abruptly. There is a setting of the stage that must happen first. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'd like us to take a quick look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and the first part of verse 2, because it really sets a paradigm for us to understand what's going on here. Here's what it says. It says, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Okay, now that is a very big picture statement. It's telling us for a very, very long time, God spoke to Israel by prophets. And they were all meant to lead us up to the coming of God's son, the Messiah. And now with the coming of Jesus, that happened. But here's the thing. When Jesus shows up, there hadn't been a true prophet in 400 years. Malachi was the last. So if the period of the prophets is supposed to give way to the era of the son, then the baton from one era needs to be handed off to the next. But you can't do that if there's a 400-year silent period where there's no prophets. Therefore, it makes sense for there to be a final prophet that hands off the baton. So one more prophet, one more forerunner, one more herald, and that man is John the Baptist. That man is who our text is about this morning. John does what all the prophets do. I mean, if you think about just the 12 verses... We open with, when I read them, think of what John did. 
If you ever get the time, which, come on, we all have no excuse, read the prophets from Isaiah to Malachi. If you read the Bible cover to cover every year, they'll get covered for a couple months in that time. If you start with Isaiah and you read all the way to Malachi, you quickly get a feel for what the prophets did. They consistently did two things. They consistently and constantly warned Israel to repent because of the coming wrath of God, okay? And then they also prepared Israel for the coming of the Messiah. So you read them all, Isaiah to Malachi, repent, judgment's coming. And by the way, Messiah's coming. Here's what to expect with the Messiah. If you look at the first 12 verses, John does the exact same thing. So he's the quintessential prophet. He stands as the nexus between the old and new covenants. And because of that, his role is huge. It's enormous. And so the purpose of our text this morning is to show us the role that he has to fulfill. He must fulfill it for the bigger redemptive timeline. That's the primary purpose of this. That's what we're here to see. Now, I will add that there are secondary things we could see in the text as well. When we look at John's life and when we look at his message, it's very instructive for how we should live and how we should see the world. So we'll be seeing that too as we go through it. But moving back to the primary purpose of John in our text, we must not forget that the prophets foretold the Messiah, okay? And he's heralded by a special prophet. But the prophets also foretold that heralding. The prophets foretold this forerunner. So John the Baptist is necessary. You cannot have the story without him. And that is why all four gospels have John the Baptist in it. He is necessary. We have to meet John before we meet the grown-up Jesus who's ready to begin his ministry of saving people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So with all that, let's look at the text. John the Baptist, as I said, is the forerunner of the Messiah, and Matthew's going to show us by what John did and what John said. So we're going to spend the rest of our time in verses 1 through 6 looking at what John did. And by the way, when you look at what John did, it's also going to tell you who John is and what John was like. So starting at verse 1, we read this. It says, in those days, which is just a transition statement, right? We're now jumped forward 30 years and the days of those 30 years later. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Now that's a very simple statement. When it says that John the Baptist came, the Greek word is the word for appeared or arrived. John the Baptist appeared. It, it seemed like, boom, here he is. He just arrived. And his, his arrival is a big deal. Remember, there had not been a legitimate prophet in 400 years. But one thing that you might not know is there had been a lot of false prophets that would show up and they would get everybody's hope up. Then their ministry would always fizzle out, it would come to nothing, and then people would be disappointed. Well, with John, the real deal has arrived. And keep in mind, this is a time of Israel's history where there's a lot of expectation. Israel is ruled and oppressed by the Romans, and before the Romans, it was the Greeks. Before the Greeks, it was the Persians. Before the Persians, it was the Babylonians. They were tired of being oppressed. There was a lot of messianic fervor and expectation. When the Messiah comes, he'll set us free. He'll make everything right. And the Romans were the, the heaviest, some of the heaviest oppressors. So every time a so-called prophet shows up, people would get excited, thinking this might lead us into the era of the Messiah. This might bring us to the kingdom of God. And so John arrives at the right place. It tells us he arrived in the Judean wilderness. Now, if you don't know what the Judean wilderness is, some of us are going to know in March. But just from what I've read, it's a, it's a barren wasteland west of the Dead Sea. And it was largely uninhabited. John, being the tough guy that he is, he lived out there for some time. And it's there that he begins his prophetic ministry. And I want you to think about that. If someone in our day were expecting to start a really big and successful ministry, they would not start it out in a wilderness where nobody lives. Yet, John does that, and multitudes are going to flock to him there because he has the truth. And the reason for this is because when this prophet arrives, it is supposed to be this wilderness. This is where this is supposed to happen. And so that will only boost the excitement. And I'll come back to why it's supposed to be this wilderness uh, a little later, because the text is going to tell us. But for now, I just want us to keep reading, okay? Now, we call him John the Baptist, because that's what the text calls him. So if I were to ask, what was the main thing he did? You'd be like, baptize people. 
And yes, he did baptize people, but that's not the main thing he did. Verse 1 actually tells us what his primary ministry was. It tells us he arrived, and then it tells us the manner in which he arrived, meaning it tells us what his arrival meant, what he was primarily doing, okay? It says that he arrived or he came, quote, preaching in the wilderness of Judea. That's his primary job, preaching. So then the question is, what did he preach? And that's what verses 7 through 12 will focus on. But even in verse 2, we get a summary. And so we have to talk about that, right? So what was he preaching? Look at verse 2. He says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, there is a lot that I have to say on verse 2. We're going to be here a while. Probably till 4 o'clock. No, I'm just kidding. We'll be here a while. He begins with one word, one simple word. A command. He says, repent. But what does that word mean? See, some people wrongly think it means just to be sorry. That's what I thought when I was a new believer at 17 years old. When somebody said, well, you got to repent. In my head, I thought, oh, I'm sorry for what I did. I'd keep doing it, but I thought I was sorry. And so I'm like, that's repentance. That's not repentance. There's a lot more to it than that. Now, others who come out of a Roman Catholic background might confuse repentance with penance. Very different words, Okay. Penance is this idea that you have to do good deeds that erase your bad deeds. They make up for them. Well, that is 100% not in the Bible. That's the opposite of what's in the Bible, okay? So if repentance isn't just saying you're sorry to God, and if it isn't doing a bunch of good things to uh, make up for your bad things, well, then what is it? Simply put, repent means to turn away from your sin. When you study everything both the Old and New Testament tells you about this word, when you understand the Hebrew concept of teshuva and the Greek concept of metanaeo, when you understand these, you get this big picture of what it means to repent. And so I'm going to tell us. First, it means to stop doing what's wrong. Stop doing what's wrong. If you're worshiping other gods, stop. If you're living in the flesh and doing the things of the flesh, stop. Turn away from it. Now, to stop and to turn away, that requires three things, three simple things. First, and I'm going to give them to you in order. First, you have to change your mind. You have to change your mind about the evil things that you've been captured by. Change your thinking. Agree with God that those things are wrong. God, you're right. This is wrong. This is a sin. Don't try to justify these things. Instead, call them by the right name, sin. And so agree with God as to what it is, and then agree with God as to what it deserves. What does sin deserve? Judgment, eternal condemnation, okay, eternal punishment. So if you agree with God and change your thinking and say, this is wrong, God is right, this is sin, it deserves hell forever, then why would you want to keep doing it, right? When you change your mind, why would you want to keep doing it? Why would you want to keep living in sin? So think rightly, change your mind. Second thing is to change your feelings, And of course, you have to change your thinking first. When you come to believe that something is evil, you're not going to love it anymore, okay? You're just not. You're going to hate it, okay? You're going to hate it. You see, when, when, when someone is captured by any given sin, while they belong to that sin, they love it. And because they love it, they do whatever they can to convince themselves and everybody else that it's okay. But once they change their mind and they agree that it's not okay, then they could start to see it for what it is. They could say, no, this is not okay. This is rebellion against God. This does not bring happiness. This will only bring me judgment. It's a trap. It's a trap that seeks my doom. Once you start to see it that way, you're not going to love it. Okay, you're going to emotionally start to loathe it. You'll hate it. And it's very hard to do something that you hate. Okay, there are some things I don't want to eat because I hate them. Not, you're, you're, I'm not tempted by them. When you hate something, you're not tempted by it. So change your mind, change your emotions or your feeling. And then third, when you got the mind changed and the feelings changed, then you could change your actions. Walk in the opposite direction of the sin. You no longer give yourself over to those things. That's what it means to repent, okay? Now, there's another side to this. If you're turning away from something, which is what repentance is, then at the same time, you're to turn toward something else. So there's a negative and a positive. I'm going away from something, but I have to go towards something. That's why repentance always has to be understood in light of the other side, which is faith. Repentance is to turn away from the bad. Faith is to turn toward God, to turn toward the good. So you walk away from the sin and repentance, but then you come to God in faith. You walk away from the sin, you go in the opposite direction towards God. So if you're worshiping other gods, you stop. 
and instead you worship the one true God alone. If you're living in the flesh and you're doing all sorts of sinful things, you stop. And then you, you live in the spirit and you start doing the things according to what we see in the Bible. Now, there is one more thing, though, that I do want to say about repentance that we often don't think about. So I want to get a little more precise. There is a difference between commanding a non-believer to repent and commanding a believer to repent. They are two very different emphases. When you tell a non-believer to repent, you are telling them to stop being a non-believer. You're not telling a non-believer to stop a specific sin. What good does that do them? They're still going to hell, right? No, you're telling them to stop being a non-believer. Stop rejecting God. Stop denying Jesus. Stop living for yourself and worshiping yourself and turn to God. Turn to Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to him. Believe on him with all your heart. It's a call for people to repent. That is what we mean when we tell unbelievers to repent, okay? And so if there's any unbelievers here today, just listen to me. If you turn away from your unbelief and you believe on Jesus today, you will be saved. And I'll tell you what that means at the end, but you will be saved. That is repentance, and that's faith. You move from being an unbeliever to being a believer. But for those who are believers, when we command you to repent, when you're commanded to repent, it's a different emphasis. And what do I mean by that? Well, you've already turned away from unbelief to belief. You've already confessed Jesus as your Lord. You've already identified with him in baptism. Okay, you're, you're, you're saved. You've been saved, right? You've been forgiven of all your sins because you've believed on him. But there's a problem that all of us who've been walking in the Lord for any amount of time, there's a problem that we all know, and it's that we still struggle with sin, don't we? God gives us a new heart. He gives us a heart that wants to do what's right, but we still battle with temptation, and sometimes we lose. So when you tell a Christian to repent, you're not telling them to get saved. They're already saved. Instead, you're telling them, turn away from whatever sins you're comfortable with. Stop them. Stop the sin. Do the righteous opposite. So for example, if you are a gossip, stop it. Stop, and then replace it with using your mouth to build people up rather than tear them down. That's what it means to walk in the Spirit, to do what the Word says. So as believers, we will be repenting like that for the rest of our lives. That's just part of the Christian life. Now, the question is, why did I bring up this different emphasis of the command to repent when it comes to unbelievers as opposed to believers? It's because whenever you see repentance commanded in the Bible, you want to ask, who is it talking to here? Are we talking about unbelievers or believers? If it's talking to believers, like all the letters from Romans all the way to Jude, it's talking to believers. So what it's telling us to do is stop whatever sins we are doing, whatever is hurting us, whatever is dishonoring God, and whatever is spoiling the church. We need to stop. But if it's talking to unbelievers, which a lot of times in the Gospels it is, it's telling them to come to God through Christ so that they will not go to hell. So with that in mind, which emphasis is John using? We have to ask that to interpret the passage properly. He is talking to these people as if they are unbelievers. That much will be clear as we move on. He is warning them about the eternal judgment to come. He's not warning them about rewards and stuff like that. He's talking about like hell fire, which becomes clear. Now, you might be wondering what's the big deal with that. Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God chose Israel as his special nation. They were in covenant and, in my opinion, are in covenant with God. He is their God. They are his people. And at this time in Israel's history, first century, they're not worshiping other gods anymore. They're not doing what they did to get them in the exile all those centuries before. So the people who were going out to hear John thought they were faithful Israelites they would never expect to be called out as unbelievers. They would expect him to tell them to repent the way we tell believers to repent. But he's turning upside down everything they thought. He's telling them your status as an Israelite means nothing. Your superficial keeping of the law of God means nothing. You all need salvation. And again, that's revolutionary, very revolutionary for him to be saying that for his audience. John is not the weak, seeker-sensitive pastors and preachers of our day that do not want to offend their audience with the truth. Well, you can never say that, but, you know, people will get up and leave. Um, I remember Pastor Brian was telling me how he knew of a church in, I think it was Colorado, that was going through Romans, and they skipped chapters like 8 through 11, you know, and when he wrote them about it, they said, well, we don't want to offend people. It's like, are you kidding me? 
Whoever leads that church, step down. You're not cut out for this. Okay, because we're supposed to preach God's word as it says. We're supposed to preach the truth. People will water it down so they won't say what God says in his word. But John the Baptist is no coward. He's a true preacher. He speaks God's word, even if it might be hard to hear. Those people walked over a day to get out in the middle of nowhere where it was miserable just to be told they were unbelievers and they need to repent. And that didn't cause John to pull any punches. So if any of you here ever aspire to preach the word of God, learn from John's example. This is the biblical example. Anyway, I know that was all a lot of information about repentance. But since repentance is the core of John's message and what he's preaching, we need to understand that. And it'll help next time's sermon. It'll help us get through it a little easier because we'll know that what John is saying is not crazy. This is just what it means to repent. Okay, now the next thing we see, though, in verse 2, so he tells him to repent. The rest of verse 2, he tells him why to repent. So look at verse 2 again. He says, repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, that is a huge announcement, pregnant with all sorts of prophetic significance. A prophet shows up in the wilderness, and he's saying the kingdom of heaven has come near. And what that means is it's arrived. The kingdom's here. That's tantamount to saying the Messiah is here. And because he said this, religious leaders from Jerusalem are going to ask him, are you saying you're the Messiah then? If you read the first chapter of the Gospel of John, you'll see that. Are you the Messiah then? If you're saying this, are you the Messiah? He's like, I'm not the Messiah. I'm the forerunner of the Messiah. And the reason I just bring that up is my point is the very announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand would make everyone's eyes get big. They'd say, wait a minute. If the kingdom of God is at hand, that must mean the Messiah is walking the earth right now. Is this for real, John? And indeed, it was for real. He was walking the earth at that time. I mean, just the excitement these people would have at hearing that. Now, I do need to take just a few minutes to, uh, to talk about the kingdom of heaven, though. Right? There's a lot of confusion about the kingdom of heaven. And first, let me just tell you this. Old school dispensationalists would tell you, well, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are two different things. They aren't. It is actually really easy in Matthew to prove they're the same thing. Matthew just likes saying kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. But they're the same thing, right? So the question is, why does Matthew, he's the only one who calls it kingdom of heaven. Everybody else calls it kingdom of God. And people debate this all day long. Some people think it's because, well, you know, the Jews, they don't like to say God. Even when they write, you see them put the little hyphen between in the place of the O. It's G hyphen D. You know, they like to say Lord. They like to substitute um, just the word God with any other word. And that did start to happen around this time. And so since Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, people thought he's just using heaven as a, like a, uh, here's a million dollar word, a circumlocution for God. That it's standing in the, in, in the place of God. But here's the thing, I don't think that's what's going on here, because Matthew has no problem using the word God throughout his gospel. He just doesn't use it with kingdom of. He says kingdom of heaven, but he'll say God all over the place. So it's not like he's trying to not say God. I think what's going on here is Matthew has this preference to say kingdom of heaven because it paints the picture that all earthly kingdoms are underneath it. It's giving us a a better view of what it is. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom above all kingdoms. Why? Because its king is above all kings. Anything you see down here, no matter how powerful it looks, it's nothing because it's underneath God's kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven. So the question then is, what is the kingdom of heaven or what is the kingdom of God? Christians have been debating this forever, okay? Some say the kingdom of God is in the future only. It's when Jesus returns on the clouds and sets up his throne on earth. And listen, he is going to do that. Zechariah 14 says he's going to step foot on the, the Mount of Olives. Acts chapter 2, he takes off from the Mount of Olives into the clouds, and the angels say he's going to come back the exact same way, which means, just like Zechariah says, his landing point is the Mount of Olives. Matthew 25, he says he will sit on his glorious throne, which, when you compare it to what he says in Matthew 19, is a throne on earth. So Jesus will come. He will reign on earth. It's nonsense when people say he won't. Okay, You cannot biblically justify that. But that doesn't mean that's what the kingdom is, at least not what he's talking about here. See, the problem with reducing the kingdom only to the future is that John just said it arrived. Kingdom of heaven's here. And Jesus, by the way, says the exact same thing. This is his first words of ministry, just to let you know. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, it's identical to what John said. 
Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. So, how should we understand this? Well, first you need to understand that the kingdom of God refers to the rule of God. It refers to his reign. It's not necessarily a space. It will be, but it's not confined to a space. It's his reign. It would be correct. A lot of commentators are saying um, the word kingdom's not the right word in English anymore, that they should start translating kingdom of God as the sovereignty of God, because that's what it, it conveys in the Greek. And if you looked at Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, it's clear that God is sovereign. He reigns over all the kings of the earth. He always has. I'll read it. He says, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. There is no one who can block his hand and say to him, What have you done? No one could say that to God. He's God. He's in control. And keep in mind, that declaration we just read came from the mouth of a pagan emperor, the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. He recognized God is in command. So in one sense, God's kingdom is his reign, and God always reigns. Therefore, his kingdom has always existed. But the Bible makes it clear that a day is coming when God's reign will be direct. It's indirect right now. There are so many people in the world that give no acknowledgement to the fact that God is king. He is king. What he wills comes to pass, but there is not the recognition of this everywhere. You don't have every tongue confessing. You don't have every knee bowing, right? Because God's reign right now is indirect. The speaking of the kingdom of God coming is this hope that it will arrive and be direct. It will be everywhere. Everyone will know it. Everyone will serve God. Those who are wicked will be removed from the earth, and those who are redeemed will remain with God forever. So the idea of the kingdom of God is the idea that the reign and sovereignty of God that has always existed will one day be manifested everywhere, and you can't not see it. And what the the hope was and what the prophets God at was that God was going to use his Messiah, the Savior, to bring forth that kingdom, that era where God's sovereignty is felt in all nations. So again, in one sense, the kingdom's always been. In another sense, it's something that's supposed to come with the Messiah. And here's the interesting thing. It's something that Jesus told us to pray for. We'll be getting to this when I get to the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, but here's what he tells us to pray to God. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Now, I don't know if you notice, but that's a future tense prayer. Some people are like, well, once he ascended, the kingdom did come, so you don't pray that anymore. Then why in the world would Matthew and Luke record this prayer for us after he ascended? No, this is a prayer that we're supposed to be saying, supposed to be agreeing with. It's, it's a future tense prayer. The kingdom will be here in fullness when God's will happens on earth exactly as it does in heaven. Let me, let me put that up one more time. That is defining the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom? God's will being done on earth as it is done in heaven. Okay, again, some people will be like, but God's will is done. But is it done on earth exactly as it's done in heaven right now? Listen, in heaven, no one rebels. In heaven, no one lies. In heaven, no one sins. In heaven, everyone worships God. In heaven, everyone obeys God. In heaven, the book of Revelation shows us that everyone sings God's praises and bows before him out of reverence, awe, and love. A day is coming where that will happen everywhere on earth. And so we are commanded by Jesus to pray for it. And if you want to know if it's here, just look around. You'll be like, nope, that ain't happening. So this is something we're still praying for. Now, I am fairly certain that I may have confused a lot of you guys. Because I said the kingdom is always a reality because God has all power right now. But then I said the scripture presents the kingdom in its fullness as God's will happening perfectly everywhere on earth, which is future because it's not happening now. But then I also said that those who think the kingdom of heaven is only a future thing, that they're wrong. Because John told people to repent because the kingdom's near. And Jesus told them to repent because the kingdom has arrived. But then Jesus says, pray for it, that it will come. So what's going on? I hope that you're seeing that the kingdom of God is more complex than we would like it to be. If somebody is preaching it as if it's super simple, they're not reading the word. You're supposed to be confused in a sense, okay? Because the kingdom's bigger than what we might think. So I'm going to just give it to you straight, the best way I know how. 
When Jesus came the first time, the kingdom of God was inaugurated. There's two words that will help us here. Inauguration, consummation. Two different words. Inauguration, consummation. Inauguration is when something begins. Consummation is when it is fulfilled and it's complete. Okay? Now, a lot of times people expect inauguration and consummation to happen at the same time. But it doesn't always work that way. Think of a Jewish marriage. The marriage begins, it's inaugurated with the betrothal, but it's consummated with the marriage ceremony, which was separated by a year. Okay? Same thing with the kingdom of God. When Jesus was here, the king was here with words from his mouth, with just mere words from his mouth. Sickness left those who were ill. Lameness left those who were crippled. Demons left those who were possessed. Leprosy left those who were diseased. And even death left those who were dead. Just by Jesus saying a word. Think about that. That is the full curse being pushed back when Jesus just spoke into a situation. Then you might say, what about the, the earth itself being cursed? I recall him being on a boat and a storm was about to sink it and he just spoke words and the storm died. And it was now in perfect shalom, right? Everything Jesus spoke to, the curse, in a sense, died. It fleed from him or fled from him, okay? And so my, my point is Jesus gave us a foretaste of what it will be like when his power is expanded over the whole world. He only showed it what, and right in front of him. But one day, it's going to be expanded all over the world. The curse will be gone. Now, even as he was giving the foretaste, if you've read the Bible, you know that he even gave his servants, his disciples, the power to do some of the same things. Apostles healed diseases. They raised the dead. They didn't stop storms, but they, they at times raised the dead. And so, you know, the thing is, it's showing that, that, that the power of the kingdom to come, it's here now, in some respects, through those Jesus saves. Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit upon those who believe on him. According to Joel chapter 2, that's an end time thing that happens all over the whole world. But in Acts chapter 2, it happened in a small upper room and continues to happen every time somebody believes on the Lord. That's what I mean by inauguration. It started. It started as a seed and the kingdom's growing in that sense, but it is not here in its fullness. It's not consummated. So the kingdom did come. And it is here in part, but it's not here in full. The fullness is what we pray for. The partial is what we enjoy right now. But at the same time, I do want to let you know, the church and kingdom are not exactly the same thing. Okay, the kingdom is just this ultimate reality of the reign of God, which includes angels, all that stuff. The church is the colony of the kingdom. We're the witness of the kingdom. Paul describes us as ambassadors. Ambassadors are in a foreign country. We're pilgrims, right? So we are God's embassy, that's what the church is, we're the embassy of the kingdom, so that the world could look in our doors, in that embassy, and they could see the ethics and realities of the kingdom, okay, but the kingdom isn't here yet, we're just the witnesses of the kingdom, but some of the power and some of the reign of Christ is here, and think about it, okay, right now at the end of the year 2022, the one true God is worshipped in most nations on earth, there's still a lot who have to be reached, but in every hemisphere, his name is being called on. When John the Baptist first said, the kingdom of God is here, it was only in one nation, Israel. Tiny little seedling. But through the church as the embassy, it has grown, it has covered the whole world, but it's still not here in fullness. It comes in fullness when we see our king coming on the clouds, and then he's going to enforce the kingdom everywhere, okay? So that's the nature of the kingdom of God. That's why sometimes it talks about it right now. That's why sometimes it talks about it future. We have to have that in our mind. Inauguration, consummation, two other words that can help you, already and not yet. There's an aspect of the kingdom that's already, but there's an aspect that's not yet. And as long as we keep that in our mind, then we're, we're not going to get this wrong. We will be able to get this right. And so that's the nature of the kingdom. John's announcing its, its arrival. But let me say one more thing. John didn't know what I just told you. He might be saying, he's saying he knows more than John the Baptist? Yes, because I got the whole scripture, right? Here's the thing. John thought inauguration and consummation were going to happen at the same time. So he's preaching this message as an end time message. You better repent right now. And his audience accepted it that way. But when we get a little later into Matthew, John's going to send some people to Jesus and say, are you the one? Or are we waiting for somebody else? Because even John was a little confused by how the kingdom was, was supposed to work. And Jesus is the one who explains it all for us and, and makes everything clear. But anyhow, okay, so John says, repent. The kingdom's here. That's his message. 
Now we have to kind of move into what he's doing. But there's a question that goes along with this. Why is John the Baptist out in the wilderness preaching this message? Let's look at verse 3. It says, it says, For he is the one spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, who said, A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. In other words, Isaiah said, there is going to be the voice of somebody in the wilderness, somebody preparing the way of the Lord. And I find this fascinating for a couple reasons. If you were to read the Isaiah quote in Hebrew, it actually uses the word God. It says, make straight the paths of our God. But Matthew took God and put the word Lord, which often was in the place of God. And that was a very intentional thing he did because what does the New Testament always call Jesus? Lord. He's the Lord. And so what Matthew is saying is he's using this Isaiah quote to tell us Jesus, Jesus is God. See, Isaiah said a forerunner, a herald, a voice crying in the wilderness will prepare us for the coming of God. And again, that's a kingdom promise when the idea that God's power will be felt everywhere. God will make his presence known. Okay, Matthew's saying that God fulfills that by coming as a man. And he's already been hinting that with the virgin birth and everything. Okay, so John has the job of preparing the way for God as a man coming. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And if, if you ever wondered what's being said here, this is the language normal for the coming of a king. Okay, if a powerful king were coming through a, a land in the ancient world, a forerunner, a herald would go forward and he would let everybody know, hey, the king is going to be here. The king is coming. So you need to be ready. You want to honor the king, and everything needs to look right. Otherwise, you're going to face his judgment. That was the job of the herald. So what they would do is they would level the roads. That way, the king's carriage would move smoothly. They would remove the unsightly stones from the road, because who wants to look at that? Blah, right? And then they would fill the potholes. That way, the carriages don't get stuck or, or, or break. That way, when the king comes, the path is straight, it's level, it's clean, and the king comes in his glory, and he's happy with the people he sees because everything looks orderly and right. So John has that job, but I'm sure you guys could tell he's not talking about roads, is he? He's talking about people. God is coming to his people. They need to have their hearts prepared. They need to get rid of their sins like people would get rid of the unsightly stones off the road. They needed to fill the land with justice like people would fill the potholes okay, to make the road safe. John's job was to call Israel to turn back to God before God shows up. Otherwise, when God does show up, he'll bring judgment. Okay, that is the job of John, to prepare them. Now, one thing that is interesting about this in the wilderness is the Jews of that time definitely believed that this passage was important. Christians weren't the only ones quoting this. Okay? Fake prophets would quote this and say, hey, I'm the guy in the wilderness. And how many of you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? You know, famous set of Old Testament scriptures. They also wrote a whole bunch of other stuff. That was a, a sectarian community that broke away from the rest of Israel. They moved out to this desert our desert, the one we're talking about here. Um, and they believed this was about them. They thought they were the ones preparing the, the way of the Lord. They were wrong, very wrong. Glad they wrote some scriptures down, though, and preserved them, but they were wrong, okay? Everybody believed that when this forerunner comes, it's gonna be in this wilderness. And the reason why is because Isaiah, in that passage, he's comparing the salvation, future salvation of Israel to a second exodus. And in the first exodus, Israel came into the promised land through the wilderness of the Jordan. They crossed the Jordan. So when Isaiah says, you know, a voice crying, crying out in the wilderness, they're all thinking it's gonna be in the same wilderness we originally came through, the Jordan area. And so that's why the Dead Sea people moved out there. That's why all the fake prophets went out there. And that's why John was there. Because when the real deal was here, he knew that's where he was supposed to be. And so, of course, he was the right one. Now, what's going to make it clear that John is the right one, okay? He is this guy Isaiah talks about. What makes it clear is how Matthew describes him. You know, verse 4, look at it. You might have always found this to be a strange passage, but everything's there for a reason. It says, now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, you might be thinking, what is the point of that little editorial comment? Like, I really need to know what he ate and how gross he looked. The point is, that's an important detail. Yeah, this guy was weird, okay? Would he draw crowds in America? Probably not. 
Usually it's a well-dressed person with nice teeth and a good smile in a fancy building who talks smooth, okay? But here you have a man in a harsh wilderness dressed in camel hair and he eats bugs, okay? That's what we're dealing with. If someone told you that this is the prophet that will pass the baton on to the Messiah, you'd probably say no way. But a first century Israelite would be like, of course that's what he's going to look like, you know. So sometimes people will preach this and try to say, this just shows how upside down God's way is from the world. That's true, especially for us 20 centuries removed. But back then, this was actually what the expectation would have been. Okay, John is the right guy. So you might be thinking, how does him looking like a weirdo out in the wilderness show that he's the right guy? Well, it goes back to the most famous prophet in the history of Israel. His name was Elijah. And there is only one physical description of Elijah in the Old Testament. What you had is you had the servants of an evil king going by, and a prophet walks up to them and says, judgment's coming. They go and tell the wicked king, like, hey, we came across a prophet, and he said, you're going to be judged. And the king's like, what did he look like? And this is uh, what... 2 Kings 1.8 says, they replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. And then the king said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So he knew. He's like, that hairy man is Elisha, or Elijah, that punk. And so Elijah was the paragon of the faithful prophet in Israel. And later prophets tried to copy him. I'm not going to quote it, but you could write it down and look it up yourself. Check out Zechariah 13 verse 4. It makes a promise that one day false prophets will no longer put on hairy cloaks to deceive people. And you might be reading that like, why? Like, why were false prophets putting on hairy cloaks? How would that deceive anyone? It's because they wanted to look like Elijah. They wanted to look like the true prophet. And Zechariah's prophecy was, was quite some time after Isaiah's, you know, where this would be the, the expectation. So false prophets wanted to look the part. And God said, that's going to stop. And it did. 400 years, no prophets. 400 years of silence. But when the right guy comes, he has to look the part. He's got to look like Elijah. Now, you might wonder why does he have to look like Elijah? Well, Pastor Josh has been hitting this for us, and he's going to hit it because I think you've got one more Malachi sermon, right? So I'm not going to say too much about it. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 1, God says, I'm going to send a messenger who will prepare the way of the Lord. Same language as Isaiah. So same guy. And then in verses 5 and 6, he tells us who that guy is. He says, look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. So that's, those are the last words of the Old Testament. That's the last words God inspired. That is when 400 years of silence began after those words. And so as the Old Testament ends, it tells us God will send Elijah to prepare the hearts of his people. The hearts of the fathers and the children will be made right. Otherwise, if they do not listen, God's wrath will befall the land. So again, Isaiah promises a herald in the wilderness prepares the way of the Lord. Malachi tells us it will be Elijah, or at least he'll be like Elijah. This is one reason Jews still expect Elijah to come. When we do Passover, we have a cup for Elijah. And then Passover always ends by saying, next year in Jerusalem, because it's the hope that Elijah shows up. And then that means next year Messiah will be here and we'll all be doing this in, in, in Jerusalem. Okay? So the question is, like, so they expect Elijah to literally come, but John the Baptist is not literally Elijah. Okay, so what's going on with this? And some of this goes back to like the types and shadows and all that stuff I've been telling you. And I'm not going to dive too much into this because Jesus is going to talk about this later in Matthew. So I'm going to save it for then. Here's what I will tell you, okay? When Elijah was caught up into heaven in the chariot of fire, he gave his cloak, that good old hairy cloak, to Elisha, his disciple. And Elisha asked for a portion of Elijah's spirit. So he ended up getting the spirit and power of Elijah. So if you think about Elijah was the first, but the first type was his disciple Elisha. Now you have this man who comes. And the New Testament is going to tell us more than once that he comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. So like Elisha, John the Baptist could fulfill the role of Elijah without literally being Elijah. The question is, does this mean, though, there's going to be a literal Elijah to come in the future? I'll save that mainly for when I get there because I don't know, and this gives me a couple years to figure it out, okay? But what I will say, at least in some sense, 
In some sense, John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy. He fulfills this prophecy about uh, the Elijah who is to come. Okay, and even Jesus says that, but then he kind of makes it sound like there still will be. I'm telling you, it's confusing. It's like this kingdom talk, right? But what we have here is Matthew is going out of his way to tell us that this is exactly what the Old Testament told us would happen. That's why we don't get straight into the ministry of Jesus. A herald has to come first. The baton must be handed off, and that herald's John. You have to have a guy that looks like Elijah in that wilderness doing this ministry. And that's exactly what we see happening. The right guy in the right place at the right time, wearing the right clothes, doing the right things. Now, the result of all of this, to kind of get to the end of the passage of what we're going to get through this morning, is that the end of this is the result. What did this all result in? What, what happened because the right guy at the right place doing the right things was there? A whole bunch of Israelites repented. Look at verses 5 and 6. You know, it bugs me when, you know, people say, yeah, the Jews rejected John the Baptist. No, they didn't. Their leaders rejected John the Baptist. I mean, look at this. It says in verses 5 and 6, it says, Then people from Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the vicinity of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Literally, the Greek says, Jerusalem went out to him. All Judea went out to him, and all the vicinities of the Jordan went out to him. It didn't say people. It said just those regions went out to them. That's a way to say this was a whole bunch of people. And some people might be like, well, is Matthew exaggerating? No. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, also writes a little bit about John the Baptist. He tells us John was a righteous man turning people back to God and that so many people followed him that Herod thought it was big enough to be an army that could overthrow him. That was one of his motives for killing John. Now, Matthew's going to tell us another motive is John was calling him out for his sin. But the point is, even Josephus says, we all know about John the Baptist, and a boatload of people followed him. It was a lot. Okay, so John was not somebody who was rejected by Israel. He was rejected by the leaders and a corrupt king, okay? So again, that just substantiates what Matthew's saying here. A lot of people came out to John. So when our text says tons of people from Judea and Jerusalem and the Jordan River came out to be repent and be baptized, that's exactly what it means. Now it tells us, Quote, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, for years, I would read by this so quickly and miss the significance of this. But I want us to put our thinking caps on and just think for a moment. What is this baptism? If you knew nothing about God, nothing about the Bible, you grabbed the Bible and you just started reading it. And you started with Genesis. And you get through the whole Old Testament. Let's say you're doing the Bible in a year plan. So it's now October. And you're, it's October, yeah, because three chapters in, it's October 1st. You're reading this passage. This is the first time the word baptism ever comes up, period. This is the first time. Now, as Christians, we think of baptism all the time. We read it. We don't pay any attention to this. But you won't find baptism in the Old Testament. Yeah, you'll find ritual baths for purification, but that has nothing to do with sin. And it doesn't paint the picture of the cleansing of sin. But here you have people showing up, confessing their sins, and being baptized, seeking the forgiveness of sins. Now, that should be a big problem because in the Old Testament, where does forgiveness come through? The temple. You get forgiveness of sins by the sacrifices at the temple, and the temple was still standing in Jerusalem when John was out in this wilderness. So how in the world could this man eating his bugs, offer forgiveness of sins to those who confess to him and get immersed in the Jordan River, which is a pretty dirty river. How? How could this be? And this is where knowledge of the time comes in handy. There was a baptism performed by the Jews. But here's the thing. It wasn't performed on themselves. It was only performed on Gentiles. It was a baptism for Gentiles. If you were of the nations and you wanted to be a part of Israel and you were willing to forsake your paganism and your Gentile identity, you could convert to where your identity would now be Jewish, but you would have to be immersed in water. And if you were a man, sorry, but you had to be circumcised too. But first, you had to be immersed in water. The immersion would signify that you are cleansed of your paganism and you are now brought into Israel, okay? And at that point, you are now an Israelite and your sins are forgiven. And now that you're part of the covenant community, guess what? Henceforth, the temple sacrifices cover you. You know, the temple sacrifices didn't do anything for Gentiles. That was for Israel. If you're not in Israel, Yom Kippur does nothing for you. But if you get baptized and join the community, now Yom Kippur does something for you. Now, 
I'm telling you all that for a reason. Think of how confrontational John's message was if that was the only thing baptism could have meant back then. You know, John is telling them, we Jews who are in covenant with God have actually been living in a way so unpleasing to God that God now requires you to come to him as if you were a convert from the nations. In other words, his command for them to repent was the kind of repentance you require from unbelievers. And that's why he's going to say, your status as children of Abraham is nothing right now. You're no better than a Gentile, is what this baptism is signifying to the Jews. It is asking them to assume that they are not God's people. And that the only way they're going to become God's people is to humble themselves and go through these waters. The very waters that Israel came into the land through, they have to go through again. They have to be put back into it. They have to, in a sense, re-become Israel before God will come to Israel. And that is what, and if you think about it, that would totally offend Jewish pride. What are you saying we're not the people of God and that the temple sacrifices don't work and we got to get baptized in the Jordan River? But this is what it meant for Elijah to turn the fathers and sons back to each other and to turn them back to God. This is what it meant for the herald in the wilderness to make straight the paths to prepare the way of the Lord. Israel had to come back to God this way, in this river, in this wilderness, and this was how. And here's the thing, you would think, oh, Jews are going to be ticked off at this, but it tells us countless Jews showed up. It tells us they confessed their sins to him, and they were baptized. Again, it's the leaders that show up and reject him, and that's what the next part of the text is going to focus on, okay? And we will get to that next time. As I said, I would have loved to get through the whole text today, but the things Matthew's showing us in these first six verses are so important that I didn't want to rush them. We had to know repentance. We had to know the kingdom of God. We had to understand exactly what this baptism signified, right? And it's very important to understand that before the Savior could begin his ministry, this final prophet that stands in the place of all the prophets, he had to show up and hand off the baton, and he had to eat locusts and wear camel hair, you know? He had to be in the wilderness of Judea. He had to prepare Israel for Messiah, for the the coming of God in the flesh. Therefore, he had to tell them to repent as if they were coming to God for the first time. And the Old Testament required this. Remember, one thing I want to finish with, okay? At the end of the day, this isn't about John. And you're going to be thinking, you've been talking for an hour about John. You're lying, my friend. But no, listen, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. It was after, think about this. If you go back to the book of Exodus, I don't think we think about this a lot. It was 400 years of silence when they were slaves in Egypt. It's after 400 years that God visits Israel when they're in slavery. And now here we are. It was after 400 years of silence again that God becomes flesh in the womb of a woman in Israel in order to visit Israel. God came in the Exodus to free them from slavery. Jesus comes in the flesh to free them from slavery to sin. He came at the right time to the right family. Okay, He was of the line of King David. He was born in the right town, Bethlehem. He was raised in the right backwater place, Nazareth of Galilee. And it just so happens that right before he shows up to do his ministry, a man in the spirit and power of Elijah shows up crying out in the wilderness, preparing the hearts and minds of Israel for the Messiah. My point is, everything that has to be in place to prove that Jesus is the Messiah is all here. And so, yes, John is important, because if all the other things about Jesus were here, but a a person in the spirit and power of Elijah was not, then we're missing a prophecy here. And there's room, room to doubt. But every little piece is being fulfilled. Why? Because Jesus is the Messiah. John is here to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. That is why this text is here. And and so John the Baptist appeared at the right time in the right place to do the right ministry. And next time we'll look closely at his message because there's a lot to learn from him and his message. But for now, I want us to reflect on what we've learned from what we've seen this morning. We learn now one more way that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. It was through the ministry of John the Baptist. What John did is Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament. That's my point. So that should increase our faith in Jesus. We also learned that the kingdom of God came with Jesus. And because of that, because we are members of that that colony, that, that embassy of the kingdom, we now have a role similar to John. I don't know if you realize that. He was calling unbelievers to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. We have the job of calling unbelievers from every nation to repent because the fullness of the kingdom is at hand. 
Okay? They need to convert from their unbelief to belief. Because when Jesus returns, when he's coming on the clouds, it is too late. And it says the world will mourn. It's too late at that point. Okay? So John had urgency in spreading that message. How about us? Do we call to our loved ones and our neighbors as if the time was at hand? Do we cry out to them? Do we tell them that today is the day of salvation? Or do we stare at the rocks in the road and stare at the potholes in the street and assume someone else is going to do it? That someone else is going to make straight the paths of our king? No, it's us. Do we support world missions? There are nations where no one worships God. Thousands of nations. Does that bother us? Does that bother us that 150,000 people are going to die today and they live their whole life not knowing a single Christian, not having access to a Bible because no gospel preachers reach them yet? Does that bother us? Us preparing the way of the Lord is getting the gospel to those lands. And yeah, not all of us can go, but all of us could pray for the cause. All of us could give finances to the cause. That's why we collected Lottie Moon this morning. That's why we're going to collect it next week. That's why every year we hope it's bigger than it was the year before. Okay, would we withhold from that just because we want to buy more things for ourselves that we're just going to throw away next year? May it never be. May it never be. Our job right now, like John's, is to prepare the path, make way for the Lord. Fortunately, this, this week, I had the privilege of, of leading my wife's aunt Dorothy to the Lord just three days before she died. I wasn't prepared for that. But I got the chance to do it. Pastor John right now at this moment is in the Far East right now trying to equip indigenous folks to reach the lost tribes of their particular country. And all of you, every single one of us, we have people that need to hear it from us. And we can't, we can't shy away from it. We can't. Okay? We all know people who need to hear the message to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you won't tell them, if we won't tell them, then who will? It has to be you. It has to be us. Next week, we have an opportunity given to us by the Lord to invite people to come to our Christmas worship service. We should be inviting people frequently because the gospel is preached every single Sunday here. But Christmas is one of the two days out of the year where unbelievers are often willing to go. Christmas is one of the two days they're not going to get mad at you for asking them, okay, that they're not going to get offended. So will we ask people? Will all of us invite people? I can promise you they're going to hear the gospel for sure next week. Loved ones, let's not hear this and then walk away and do nothing. You know, the book of James says that, that hearing the word but not doing the word is like looking in a mirror and then forgetting what you look like. That's what it means to be a hearer only. Okay, like pretty much the bottom line is let's not be that way. Jesus demands a response from all people. And like John, we get to be heralds in a sense that point people to Jesus in order for them to have an opportunity to respond, okay? So for those unbelievers, we need to call them to repent, like John called his own people to repent. And if we haven't been doing that, then may we repent the way believers are called to repent. James 4.17 tells us this. He says, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. That's what it says. It is sin to know the good and yet not do it. And what we're talking about today, the good, is to warn people of the judgment to come. That's the good we know that we're supposed to do. It's to tell them that salvation is found in Christ alone. If we haven't been doing it, then let's repent. Let's turn from the sin of not telling them. Let's turn to the loving act of telling them. Let this be what we do. And God, please, let this be. God, let this be for all of us here, for your glory. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, I just close this way. You need to repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And the axe is laid bare. It's at the, the root of the tree. Everything's going to be laid bare. The trees that bear no fruit are going to be cut and thrown in the fire. And the fact is this. You are a sinner. You are guilty of sin. You've lied. You've stolen. You've lusted in your heart. You've blasphemed God. And God is an all-consuming holy fire. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm sure you've done those same things. I have. All of us have. But what makes believers different from you is that we have been forgiven and you have not. But we want to tell you how you also could be forgiven. Jesus, the God-man, came and he fulfilled God's commands perfectly. He did what was right all the time. He never did what was wrong. If you believe in him, you get the credit of that right, perfect record. 
At the same time, Jesus was then nailed to the cross to pay the punishment and the penalty that all of our sins deserve. So it's real simple. Your sins are going to be paid one of two ways. Either you're going to pay them for all eternity in the lake of fire, or Jesus paid them on the cross. And the only way Jesus paid them on the cross for you is if you turn away from your sin and believe on Jesus. Believe on him as Lord. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. It's the only way. So if you have any questions about this, come talk to me because we want you to repent. We want you to believe. We want you to be saved. We want to point you then afterwards to, to get baptized and all that kind of stuff. So if you have any questions, come talk to me. Um, and what we're going to do now is I'm going to pray and then give the communion warning and the worship team will come back up and uh, lead us in one more song. God, we just thank you for your word. 